The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at TBC. And we're going to cover a couple of announcements before we get started this morning. Uh, first off, don't forget tonight is TBC Pray in the Outback. The focus tonight is going to be on anyone who works in our school systems. If you work in the school systems in some capacity, would you go ahead and please stand up? Go ahead and stand up where you're at. Let's thank them. So we're so grateful for your service to our community and to our body, but we want to invite um, everyone else to also come and just share as we pray and lift up um, as we start the new school year, especially for our teachers and administrators. I know um, for us personally, uh, my son goes to Scott Elementary here in Temple, and they lost a, one of their school counselors, uh, passed away suddenly this past week, so they're just a canvas that's reeling right now, and so we, we'll, we'll spend some time praying for them specifically tonight um, as we meet for TBC Pray, 6.30 in the Outback tonight. Also want to remind you that next Saturday, August 20th, uh, Grace Bible Church, we planted Grace Bible Church in Colleen about 10 years ago, and they're growing and flourishing as a church. And so we're going to invite all of us to celebrate that anniversary, um, to go and do a service project that they're planning for us. And so the plan is uh, show up at their church in Colleen, 8 o'clock in the morning, on a Saturday. You can do it. And, uh, and if you're interested in being a part of that, you can get a flyer from the Currents Rack here in our church lobby. So Plan on being a part of that if you can this coming Saturday. So we're in the, towards the end of a series called Jesus Is, and this is part 11. And I'm going to review just the last, uh, we're looking at different facets and aspects of who Jesus is. And so we've talked about Jesus being the God-man. We have said that he's compassionate. He's a reflection of the Father. He's a friend of sinners. He's righteous. He is forgiving. He is misunderstood. He is generous. He's our Redeemer. And he's also gracious. And if you want to know today's title, you've got to be patient. I'm going to give it to you towards the end here, so be patient this morning. So turn your Bibles, or if you're super cool, open up your apps to Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26, is where we'll be this morning. Luke chapter 8, verse 26. And I'm going to read this all the way through starting off, then we'll, we'll take it bit by bit as we go through, but... Read the whole thing starting off. Verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered into the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, 
they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat, and he returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. He went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So I want to give you some context today before we jump into this passage. Um, whenever you read in the Bible, you've got to look at the context, not just the specific one you're looking at. And so before we look at this famous story, let's look at another famous story. I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to describe it to you. But right before this story of the demoniac, there's the story of Jesus and the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And you remember there was a big storm that was struck up on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is sleeping through it. There is water coming into the boat. Uh, the boat is rocking back and forth um, in this torrential downpour. And the disciples go to Jesus and they say, they scream, Master, we're going to die. And they're trying to wake Jesus up. And how does Jesus respond to their fear? Well, first of all, he stands up and he rebukes the storm. He calms the wind and the waves. And then he rebukes the disciples. He says, where is your faith? He asks them where their faith is. And then the text says, And they were afraid, asking, Who is this that he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him? So the miracle of the storm on the sea raises a question in the disciples' mind. The question concerns the identity of Jesus. They say, Who is this? Who is this man that even the this storm obeys him? But I want you to notice a pattern. Before the miracle of the storm, what do we see? We see fear. After the miracle of the storm, once Jesus calms the storm, it says they're afraid. They're still afraid even after he does this miracle in front of them. So I want you to keep this in mind as we look at the next miracle of the demoniac. So this is the context as they step out of the boat and onto the beach. This has been a pretty eventful night and day, right? They step out of a storm and they come to the beach and now they're confronted by a naked demon-possessed guy which would be kind of a bizarre situation. And the text says he wasn't just naked occasionally. It says for a long time he had not worn any clothes, so he was naked all the time. And I don't have to tell you whether it's you're in the first century or the 21st century, if someone is in public naked, there's a problem, right? This is not normal behavior, um, a few years ago, there was a guy named Jason Russell who was the um, founder and CEO of Invisible Children, and the guy just had like a, a mental breakdown or a nervous breakdown or something, and he was found running naked through traffic shouting at people. And this made the news because everyone knows this is not normal behavior. And with this man, whether it's first century, whether it's 21st century, we know this is something is wrong with this picture if we find someone in that situation. So the disciples know something is not 
right with this guy. This man is naked. He's screaming at them. And we see in this story, look down in verse 26. I'm going to kind of recap some of these things here. Um, because when you're, whenever you're studying, I want you to see what you can learn about this guy in verse 26 and 27. When you're studying, I want you to look at every word, every phrase as a clue, into insight into this man's life. One of the phrases, verse 27, it says, he was from the city. This man is from the city. I think we often forget the humanity of some of the people in the Bible. We look at these characters and we just think, yeah, it's just a guy. But we forget that this man has a background. He's got a history. He's got a story. He grew up in the city. That means he had, of course, he had parents. Of course, he had friends. He had siblings. He had brothers and sisters. He used to play in the streets. Whatever town he was from, he'd play in the streets with other kids. He had friends. And I think that um, we forget sometimes that people like this, they actually have a story. There's a story behind their life. I would imagine that his parents probably had higher hopes for him than living in a graveyard. And so we, we see this man, he's from the city, he is a part of the social fabric as a young boy of this town, and at some point, something in his life goes awry, demons enter into this man, and now he's isolated, he is living among tombs, and again, whether it's first century or 21st century, people don't typically hang out in graveyards. I mean, if you do, you're just, you're a little off, right? So... People don't typically hang out in a place that's associated with death. In other Gospels, we know that this man was so violent that people couldn't even pass by the graveyard. They knew, you don't go down near the graveyard. We we know what lurks down by the graveyard. You don't go that way. You You go the long way to avoid the man at the graveyard. People would try to bind him with chains, and he would just break them off. In the book of Mark, we learn that every day and every night, this man would scream out in agony as these demons tormented him. You'd be lying and trying to go to sleep at night, and you'd, you would hear this man's screams echo off the water and echo off the rock walls close to the tombs. You, you couldn't sleep because this man was reminding you constantly he's being tormented by these demons Time and time again, he would pick up sharp rocks and he would cut himself, trying to destroy himself as these demons are trying to kill him. Some towns have a town drunk. This town has a town demoniac. And everyone knows him. Everyone knows where he lives. Everyone knows to stay away from the tombstones. I want you to look again at verses 28 and 29. Look at verse 28 where it says, When he sees Jesus, it says, he cried out and he fell down before him. He cries out and he falls down at Jesus' feet. And if it weren't for the demons, this would almost seem worshipful, wouldn't it? It almost seems like a submission. We know know he's possessed, but there's like this submission. Like he cries out and he falls down at Christ's feet. But then he screams out, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And there is some confusion here as to who's speaking. Is it the man speaking or is it the demon speaking through the man? Again, when looking at Scripture, look at context. Look down at verse 29 for a clue as to who is speaking here. In verse 29, it says, For he, meaning Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. This had already happened. So the assumption in verse 28 is that this is the demon speaking 
through this man. This is not the man himself. This is the demon speaking through him. This shows the demons had total control over this man. They controlled his emotions. They controlled his body. They controlled his speech. If someone controls your speech, they have total control over you. These demons had total control over this man. Now, I want you to see a connection between the demon passage and the storm passage, because after Jesus calms the storm in the previous passage, what do the disciples ask? They ask, who is this man? The disciples are raising a question about Jesus' identity. The disciples raise a question, and in the story about the demoniac, the question gets answered. The first thing the demons say is, what do you want with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? They answer the question the disciples are asking. They answer the question the disciples are asking. So the disciples raise a question, this demoniac answers the question, and he gets it right. He gives the right response. So the Jewish leaders have no idea who Christ is. The disciples don't know who Jesus is, but these demons know exactly who Jesus is. And I'm reminded of a passage in James chapter 2, verse 29, where James writes, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. What James is saying is that you believe, okay, so you believe that God is one. Okay, congratulations. Even the demons believe that. Even the demons believe that God is one. Even the demons believe there is a God. Even the demons believe they are monotheistic in their theology. Demons can have correct theology, but no one's going to argue here that demons are getting saved. No one's going to argue that their confession of Jesus Christ being Son of the Most High God, none of us would would argue that um, they are saying this in a way that is salvific in nature, that they are now getting saved as a result of their profession of who he is. Nobody would say that. And so James is, I think, saying to the church that even demons believe some facts about Jesus. He reminds us that believing Jesus is God isn't the same thing as trusting him for salvation. Even someone saying, okay, Jesus Christ is God, yeah, I believe that, isn't the same thing as putting our faith and trust in him for salvation, having a relationship with him. There's a difference between believing some facts about Jesus and trusting him as a person for salvation. There's a difference. Trust leads to transformation. Trust leads to life change. So some people might say, okay, yeah, yeah, I believe Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe he's Lord. But the question is, is he your Lord? Is he our Lord? Have we made him Lord of our lives? These demons could pass the pop quiz. If you gave them a test, they could get the answers right. They've got the right information. But these demons do not worship Jesus, love Jesus, honor Jesus. The same might be true for some of us in the room. We might be able to pass the pop quiz or the test, get the right answer on the test. But do we love Jesus, honor Jesus, worship Jesus? You see, intellectual assent is not the same thing as saving faith. In this story, we see demons. They get the right answer. But there is no 
worship and honor of Jesus as Son of God. They acknowledge that He is, but there's no obedience. There's no transformation. I want you to look with me at verses 30 and 31 as we walk through this passage. Because Jesus then asked him, he says, what is your name? And he says, legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. The abyss. So these demons, they now are starting to beg Jesus, because they know their final destiny. This is like Revelation 20 type stuff. They know their ultimate end is destruction, and they're simply asking Jesus, please don't send us into the abyss. Please don't send us to our final destruction. And this is a strange, strange passage. They know their final destiny. They're begging not to be destroyed. They know their end punishment, but they want to negotiate. Now, how many of you all have kids? Raise your hand. How many of you, your kids try to negotiate their punishment? Like, they know it's coming. They know you're an authority, and they're not an authority, but they want to, hey, wait, before, but can, we, can we talk about this? And the demons here, they know Christ is their authority. So it's not as if, are they, they're arguing with him to an extent, but they know they're in authority under him, and they want to negotiate. They want to negotiate their punishment. The text is clear in verse 30. It says um, that he didn't have just one demon. He had demons. This is plural. I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, one demon is plenty. But this man had a lot of demons. In fact, Jesus asked the name and, and the demons respond. They say, legion, for many demons had entered him. It's just, it's just too many to count. We lost track at a hundred. Like, we don't know how many demons this man has. And a legion in the Roman army could mean um, 6,000 soldiers. So we don't know how many demons entered this man. We know it's a lot, though. And I want to pause for a minute just to talk about how Christians and even non-Christians alike, how we tend to view the, the demonic and the spiritual warfare, warfare realm. If you're someone who's not yet a believer, I'm going to guess that you might look at a passage like this and say to yourself, you know, this is, this is kind of why I think Christians are crazy. I mean, you, you guys believe this stuff? I mean, I know y'all were loco, but this is ridiculous that you all would believe this kind of a passage is true. You, you really believe that there is the demonic, that there is really a real Satan and, and real demons out there. And so you might be asking those kinds of questions. And I understand, I mean, to a certain extent... I think even Christians, even we as Christians have, I think, difficulty embracing and truly believing in this kind of thing. And we have difficulty believing that spiritual warfare is real, the demonic realm is real, because we like rational explanations for things, right? Um, We label everything a disorder or something medical, and we like those kinds of explanations for things. Now, trust me, those things are real. There are chemical imbalances. There are, there, is mental, there are mental health illnesses. But I'm not arguing against that this morning. But we just can't discount the demonic. We, we can't discount spiritual warfare. We can't discount Satan. In fact, a guy named Andrew DeBanco wrote a book called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost a Sense of Evil. In the book he says, A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. 
I think what he's saying is that most people will admit that the world feels like an evil place. We see evil all around. We see evil even in ourselves. But we've got a hard time with the explanation and the solution. We don't want to get into where it comes from, and we don't want to get into what the ultimate solution for it is. And so we use words, like imagine this scenario. So you're at work, and everything has just hit the fan in the news, and there's just chaos in the streets like there have been in the last few months. And at work, you'll use words like, yeah, what's happened has been just devastating. It's horrible. It's a tragedy. But what if someone says the word, it's demonic? Or I think that guy might have a demon. I mean, people start to go like this. Really? You, you believe that? You, you really believe in that stuff? I mean, even Christians, even your Christian friends, if you use that word in front of your Christian friends, they will look at you funny. You know they will. Because we don't use that word. We don't talk about those things. But we have to understand that this is real. This is reality. In fact, you'll lose people if you go there. And so the way I think our world responds to evil is two things. Educate and medicate. Let's educate people. That'll fix evil. Let's do more medication. That'll, that'll fix evil. And again, those things can be helpful But those things will not bring evil to its ultimate end. In fact, I think if anything we learn from this story, it's this. Is that there's a power we're up against that only Jesus can handle. There's a power that is out there that only Christ himself can handle and can truly ultimately defeat. And so you and I look around the world, we see evil, it's very visible, but I don't want to overwhelm you this morning, but I really think this story shows that we don't see the half of it. We watch the news, we see evil come out all the time from ourselves and other people, but I really think we don't see the half of it. It seems like the evil we actually see is just the tip of the iceberg, Can you imagine how overwhelming it would be if you saw everything that Jesus sees? I mean, how overwhelming to to, to see with your own eyes the things that Jesus sees with his eyes. How overwhelming you would feel by, by evil if you saw everything like the disciples are seeing in this passage. And so maybe if we take anything from this story... It's that there's a power we're up against that only Jesus Christ can defeat, only Jesus Christ can handle. And there's one resource against evil, and it's Christ himself. It's not just more education. It's not just more medication. But the answer has to be Jesus Christ as the answer and the ultimate defeater of evil. I want you to look at, again at verses 32 and 33. Now, things get really bizarre in verse 32, 33. It says, Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man to enter the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. This is a bizarre text. Jesus negotiating with the demons? 
How do we make sense of this? We can't fully explain why Jesus lets these demons enter into a group of pigs. We can only speculate as to why he allowed this to happen. Here's what we know. We know it's not time for final judgment. It's not time for Revelation 20 stuff yet. It's not time for that yet. But we know that Jesus, the question becomes, why does he allow them to go into the pigs? Why doesn't he just say, you know, you guys have done enough damage. Just, just move along. But he lets them go into all these pigs. There's a couple thoughts that some commentators have. Some commentators think that um, it's to show that the man is finally freed. That once they see this power move from this man into these pigs and the pigs end up in destruction, that everyone confirms, like, yeah, he's, he's finally freed from what's been tormenting him. Other people think that it's to show how much he really had been freed from. Because I think we see it, it there's like a lot of pigs. It's like 2,000 pigs in another passage that we look at in the Gospels. And so there's a ton of pigs here that end up dying. And so I don't know how demon possession works, if it has to be like, you know, one demon for every one pig, or if it's like, hey, I got these 20, you got those 20, let's take them off this cliff. I'm not sure how all that works, but we know that there's a lot of demons going into a lot of pigs. This man's been freed from a lot. And so some think that the communication might be that he was just set free from so much, and, they wanted, and Christ wanted to communicate that and show that. Either way, in verse 34 and 30, through 37, we see the attention turns to the townspeople, and these people are understandably upset and angry. I mean, I'd be mad. That's a lot of wasted bacon. I'd be mad too. And so they're so angry, they ask Jesus to leave. They ask Jesus to leave town. And, um, but I want you to see something here. They're not just angry, but in verse 37... It says, they were seized with great fear. So remember back to the miracle on the sea. There's fear before the storm. There is fear after the storm. And what do we see here? There is fear before the miracle. And there is fear after the miracle. I think what we see is whenever some people see the strength and the power of Jesus... They turn to fear instead of faith. They see his power and they're scared of it. So the title this morning is this. The title this morning is Jesus is Strong. Now I know you're sitting there going like, that's it? I thought about putting up there like, okay, really strong, right? Make it more profound, right? But that might not sound very profound, but I want to ask a probing question today, because how do you and I tend to respond to his strength? Because in both miracles, we see fear before the miracle, we see fear after the miracle, and the question is why? Why? And I think it's because there's really two ways that we fear God. One is fear that draws us to him, the other is fear that drives us from him. There's two ways in which we fear God. Fear that draws and fear that drives. And I wonder how many of you in this room today struggle with the kind of fear that drives us from Him. I wonder if you're afraid of what He might do in your life. I wonder if you're afraid of His power and strength and what He might try to accomplish in your life. 
Because at times you and I see his strength and we're drawn to him. Other times we see his strength and want to run him out of town, just like these townspeople did. Remember what these demons first said to Jesus. They said, they screamed out, What have you to do with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I wonder how many of us in this room have ever asked that question, Jesus, what have you to do with me, Jesus? Why are you bothering me, Jesus? You know I'm in too deep. And just like these townspeople, you want Jesus to just go away and just leave you alone. But the good news is that that's not what Jesus does very well. Jesus is not in the business of leaving people alone. He's not in the business of leaving you in darkness and leaving you to your own devices. He's in the business of setting people free, just like he set this man free. And so his power is not a power to be feared. It's a power to be trusted. His power is a power to be trusted. And if you're someone who struggles with the second kind of fear I just described today, I think it might be because you're, you're missing out on the message of Psalm 62, verses 11 and 12, where it says, One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. If you struggle with a second kind of fear I just described, it might be because you don't understand that he has this unfailing love for you that's coupled with his power. He's not just powerful and strong, but he is filled with unfailing, compassionate, merciful, grace-filled love for you. And if you struggle with the second kind of fear, it might be because you're missing out on that understanding. You see him as just distant. Yeah, he's strong, but he's distant. No, he loves you. He wants the best for you. He wants to set you free. And I think power and love, strength and love, meet most profoundly at the cross. This is where we see strength and and love come to ultimate fruition at the cross. Think of the emotional and physical strength required by Christ to stay on that cross. Think of the unfailing Merciful, gracious love for you, it took to stay on that cross. And so you've got to understand that this is where strength and love meet. This is, it happens ultimately at the cross. And I know whenever I bring up that God is a loving God, some people, in fact, other religions out there, they see that as weakness. They see God being a loving God as as a weak idea. And so I want to remind you that Jesus is strong, but sometimes his strength can look like weakness. It can look like weakness. In fact, uh, a few weeks ago, my students and I went to New York City on a mission trip. And before I had them read a book by J.D. Greer called Breaking the Islam Code. And J.D. Greer spent some time in South Asia in a Muslim country. He loves Muslims. He wants to reach the Muslim world with the gospel. And I had my students read the book so they would also catch that same vision as well. In the book, he talks about how Muslims believe that Jesus Christ is a prophet. He's one of their greatest prophets. But they do not see him as God. 
And here's why. Because he says, Muslims believe the idea of the cross actually limits God's power by saying that Jesus had to die on the cross for God to forgive us. They don't believe Jesus would need to be crucified to forgive us our sins. To say that God's power to forgive requires a satisfaction of his justice would be, in their view, a limitation on his power. And so they don't say he's God because that means that how can you say he's God when he gave his life? That shows weakness in their view. So some see the cross as weakness and they refuse to believe it. But if we look at the cross and only see weakness, that is a grave mistake because in the Bible it's pretty clear that we see the cross as a display not of weakness but of power. Greer goes on to say in his book, he says, when someone rebels against the king, the king shows his power by utter destruction of that person. Yet when God wanted to show his power over his enemies, he took the form of the lowest of men, lived as a servant, and died an unjust, scorned death. So how does Christ show his power? Well, he comes in weakness. He comes in humility. And this is the essence of the gospel. God's power is displayed through weakness. Christ is strong, but he made himself weak and humble, came and gave his life. And through this humble act, there is this power unleashed over humanity, defeating death, sin, and all of his enemies. And I think in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, we see how this kind of power comes to bear on our lives, where it says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, <clears throat> so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In the Christian life, our weaknesses are often the platform for God's power. In the, Christian, in the spiritual walk, it's when I am weak that his power can come and rest upon me. And if you're like me, I don't like boasting in weaknesses. I don't like doing that. This goes against everything you and I believe, right? In fact, uh, a couple weeks ago, my, my family and I went on a vacation to Colorado Springs and we stayed in a little town called Manitou Springs, just to the west of, of Colorado Springs. And in Manitou, they have this thing called the incline. Now, who, who here has heard, the, heard of the incline? Who here has hiked the incline? All right, all two of you, good job. Um, so there's the incline, and it's really it's super steep. And it's actually steeper than what this picture even uh, can let you see. But it's, it's really, it's a long hike, and you walk up. I think almost a mile, um, and it's pretty sheer, and then you come down like a four-mile hike. It's a pretty intense hike. And so our house that we rented was like right on the pathway towards this incline. And so every day we're seeing people in their track shoes and in their, with their camelbacks on, and they're walking up toward the incline because they want to conquer the incline. And everyone's doing this. And about day three, my wife says, hey, Dave, I think I want to have, uh, you know, she wants to have her and my son, Landon, do the incline. And I said, Okay, I said, I'll volunteer to watch the five-year-old. And uh, so I'll watch after my daughter. And so this is my wife and my son at the top of the incline here. And, uh, and so the reason why these kinds of things kind of draw us in is because we love to be able to prove our strength. We love to be able to prove ourselves. And so when my wife asked me, she said, hey, do you want to go on the incline? I was like, no, I'm not trying to prove anything. You guys go ahead. 
Um, so, so I took my five-year-old daughter and we went and did this. <clears throat> and they were good. They were good. But I think these kinds of things draw us in because we, we like proving ourselves physically. This is what the Olympics are all about. I mean, I don't see many medals for last place. So we're used to boasting in strength, not in weakness. But the problem is, I think, spiritually speaking, this can bleed over into how we approach our spiritual life because we want to boast in our strength spiritually. We want to be independent, self-sufficient, and this can affect us spiritually. If there's one thing I want you to know this morning, it's this truth. Jesus is strong, but to follow him, we must become weak. You've heard testimonies each week. I want you to hear a story from one of our deacons this morning. Let's go ahead and watch this video. Well, my name is James Skinner. I am uh, originally from southwest Louisiana. Uh, I grew up in a home where there were no Christians. Uh, my dad, my mom, they were not saved. way and I was that for numerous years uh, my dad passed away when he was 46 years of age as to this day I don't know if he was a Christian or not so after he passed a year later I had a sister she was 21 years of age and she had rheumatic heart fever and she died and that's the point in my life where and when I uh, truly despised God for allowing her to die. She should have never died at that age. One day, I was struggling with some stuff, just struggling. I had a lot to deal with. I was one of those guys that I would, I feared nothing. There was nothing that I actually feared. I was destined probably to be of one of two places, dead or in prison. Exactly. I feared nothing. I didn't even fear God. I put my wife through so much. Because I was like, I guess like a lion looking for something to devour. I was so uneasy, so I was not even accepted. I didn't even accept myself. My kids were saved before I was. Of course, my wife was first. My two kids were actually Christians before I was. So here I am, the lone stranger. The lone stranger. I ended up going to uh, Pine Cove. We were going to Pine Cove for a uh, visit with my sister-in-law church, and there was one problem with that. No TV, no radios, and I'm like, what in the heck is this all about? I'm going with a bunch of Bible-thumping people that I really don't want. I had nothing in common with them. But then there was these sessions which you had to go to, and you sit there, and, and I think you discuss the Lord and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, my God. I don't think I want to be able to do this stuff. I told my wife, I am not going. It is not going to happen. For some reason, I ended up over there. And something went on. We had a session here and a session there. And I ended up on the podium, accepting the Lord. It was, it was just something there that I did. I saw a guy that was there and this guy had guns on him this guy had guns on him this was he was a man I'm saying like he loved God are you serious no no 
guys can't be like that. And, and that was a big impression on me. Because my idea was that Christians are weak. Christians are ultimately just weak people that don't know what they want to do. And they believe in something or someone that they can't see and that really does not talk to them. Um, and it took me a, a long time um, to come and um, to have that relationship with God. One night in particular, I was struggling and I just talked to the Lord. This was after I accepted the Lord in Pine Cove I, because it really hadn't, hadn't sinked in yet. So I was struggling and I said, Lord, I don't know what's going on. I can't do this anymore. The weight's too heavy. And then I, I need you to help me. And it was like immediately, it was like, wow, it's awesome. No weight to carry anymore. Um, I was at peace. I felt comfortable. And through it all, through it all, I had a wife that prayed for me. I mean, she prayed. If it hadn't been for her, I don't know where I would have been. I don't know where I would have been. So God took away all my sin when I chose to follow Him. And He just made me whole. Made me whole. If men are that follow Jesus are to be wimps, then, then so be it. When I was a kid, I grew up, my dad said, you don't cry. Men don't cry. So in essence, when my son was born and he was old enough, I, I had the same um, uh, sentiment. You're a man. Men don't cry. But let me tell you, men cry. Men cry. I was on, we were um, at Arlen Griner's place and being big shindig there and uh, didn't know it, but my son and my daughter was there. Uh, didn't know he was getting ready to send us to a trip to Hawaii. So, but before that, there was something that was missing. It was something I had to do with my kids. I had to do with my kids. I had to apologize to them for the type of father I was. I wasn't a real good dad. I didn't do all the right things. And I did something that I never did. I never, ever apologized to anyone for anything. But I apologized to my kids. And I cried. Jesus wept. So I cried. James Skinner is here at the back. Would you give him a hand for sharing the story this morning? I think it takes a real strength to be weak, it takes a real strength to be humble. And I'm just going to pray in a minute. If you're someone that for the first time in your life, you realize kind of the paradox of the gospel, that you're, you've been about power and strength in your, own, in your own might, in your own life. And for the first time, you have realized that there's a power that can be displayed through you, through Christ's power and his strength, if you come to him in weakness. If you want to come and, and, and experience that kind of strength through him this morning, and I'll be here at the front. I can pray with you in a moment if you want to surrender your life to him even today. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you. We're grateful that your power comes to rest on us when we submit ourselves to you, when we surrender our lives to you. This is when your strength is displayed in our lives. This is when you um, abolish 
sin and darkness and set us free. We thank you that that's true. We thank you that you're going to ultimately do that completely and totally in glory one day. We're grateful for that, and we thank you for that. We look forward to it. We praise you. We love you. Amen.